It's the parent's understanding of their child's constant need for attention, for approval, and praise. Tom, I am so happy to have you here this morning. Yeah, it's an honor to be here. Wow. So you've been in Japan, you said 39 years now? Coming up on it. Yeah, I came in the uh, mid-1980s. Okay. Not through the military like me. No, I got, well, I worked with the military doing a lot of soccer stuff. Okay, but you, you didn't yes, come no, here with the military. No, so you right, came here right. fresh off the boat right. as a civilian. Yeah. <laughs> that's nice. Yeah. Tell me, where were you born? New York City, in the Bronx. I can kind of feel it too. You haven't gotten rid of it either. Some people say that I have a little bit of an accent. <laughs> you, you that's have true, it. that's true. But born in the Bronx and uh, moved upstate New York. Everybody thinks New York is a big city. It's not. It's a beautiful state. Um, and we moved upstate uh, about an hour and a half outside of New York City, due north, in a place called Ulster County. Okay. And that's kind of more or less where I grew up because I think we moved up there when I was around eight years old. So. How many siblings do you have? I have a brother and a sister. And where are you? So you said, well, you said that like as if... He's older than you. Yes, both of them are. Isn't that interesting? Because the way you said it, you yeah. said I have a brother and a sister. You didn't say, I, I don't know, it's just the way That's you right. said well, it. So you have older brother and older sister. Yes. How many years difference? Uh, my sister is three years older. My brother is four years older. Yes, and they live in completely different op opposite ends of the U.S. Same parents? All yes. Of same parents. Oh, how are your parents doing now? My parents passed away. I'm, I'm an old guy. I'm not so. Oh, I'm oh, not. I'm no okay. spring chicken here. All right, all right. I'm 62 years old. Okay. So uh, my mom and dad passed away several years ago, mm -hmm. and so my brother lives in uh, Georgia, retired Air Force, and my sister lives in Sacramento, California. She's the uh, all-star of the family because she's a very um, well-known photographer. She was awarded the Pulitzer Prize. What's her name? Renee Beyer. Renee Beyer. In 2007. Okay. In fact, she's been in, she was invited to Japan to speak at one of the TED Talks. Is that right? Okay. That Patrick Newell put on. Okay. And then also, uh, I think she was invited by uh, NHK or Mayanichi newspaper. She goes around the world and she speaks about her work. Is she, is she married, have kids? Or married, and it's, that's another f kind of funny coincidence. Her husband is a Japanese-American that has nothing to do with her brother living in Japan for decades. And she hadn't lived here ever? Never. Ever. She, they met over in, in the States, okay. and he's also an accomplished uh, photographer. Did she make you an uncle? Yeah, <laughs> no, not yet. She is so married and dedicated to her career. She just okay. decided that's her child. To, her that's her child. She wrote a, she, just to kind of plug her a little bit, she, she did a book called Living on a Dollar a Day. Renee Beyer. Yeah, and she went around the world, 10 countries, four continents, and she shined a bright light on the plight of extreme poverty. And the foreword was written by the Dalai Lama. And then the second foreword was written by uh, Robert F. Kennedy, wow. who's running for president now. That's right. Yes. So, yeah. Well, that's beautiful. It's pretty cool. So did you grow up close? I mean, were you guys yeah, close? Yeah, pretty close, pretty close. But you're being the baby, I mean. Yeah, as close one. as you can be, you know. I mean... You know, when, you, when, you, when you're a kid growing up, I mean, those age differences that are between being, uh, you know, 10 and being 13 or 14, difference. that's a big difference. That's a big difference. Well, see, you were kind of spaced. Your parents spaced you apart. That's right. Well, yeah, because most of my adult life has been living here in Japan. 
I came in my early 20s. Okay. But my brother left and went to the Air Force when he was 18. He enlisted then? Yes. Okay. And then my sister, uh, she went to a community college in our area, but then she went away as well. And then I was the last one. Wait, how old is your brother now? I'm just wondering. My I'm brother, I'm 62, so John must be 66. 66? Okay. I guess. So tell me, when you were growing up in school, were you more academic or were you more physical? Just completely sports. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'll, I'll, wait, wait, I'll, I'll admit that. I was not a good student. I shouldn't say that, but um, okay. I wasn't a good student, although I wound up getting a scholarship to play soccer. But that's after you get into high school. That's right. That's, that's right. But I was school. never, I was just, you I don't had know no why. Subject, but that, I blame that on the teachers, not yeah. on you. I kind of do, too, now that I'm, I'm grown you up and I'm actually I'm a teacher myself, whether it's soccer or, or, or life skills. But that is definitely... Uh, hit or miss depending upon where you might live, d depend upon the quality of the teaching you Is have. Is that the truth? And it's with sports as well. Right. And some people are very lucky to have good teachers, good coaches, good mentors. They know and you, they and understand and I, Yeah, and I have to, I have, when I, I reflect on it now, and I, you know, I don't really think about it too much, but when I do, I think that I, I, th I could have, that's what I was missing. I didn't have a good teacher. Right. Because now I'm all about education. I understand it. Um, we can get into it later on, but I'm actually conducting some research with some big universities right now around some of the work that I do with Harvard and Stanford. And so I wasn't an academic um, back then, but I understand the importance, obviously, of education. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's a, it really, sometimes I sit down and I, and I shake my head and think, what, what if could have been or should have been if I'd had a better teacher? And I remember this. I remember when I was in, I think it was around, third grade. Isn't that that early? Yes, and I, I remember that I had this teacher. Her name was Mrs. Kent. And she pulled me out. This is a story actually in our family. I think my okay. family remembers. And she pulled me out into the hall and she said to me some terrible thing to me. Like, you, you've got the brain the size of a pea. I, and I remember this out of, of all of my did. teachers. You're I right. don't remember any of the other teachers' names. I don't remember. But that probably stuck in my subconscious. It was traumatic. It was traumatic. And at the time, I remember it was traumatic. Um, and then there was another really kind of turning point in my life, too. When we moved from New York City, and I went to a school called PS8 in the Bronx, we moved upstate New York. My mom, for some reason, decided that she wanted to hold me back in class. So I repeated fourth grade. And there was no reason for me other than later on in life when I talked to my sister that somehow my, my mom just thought I wasn't ready to go to. So when I put all of these together now, being older and doing what I do now, and um, uh, I, I, I've studied a lot about psychology and things right. like that, yeah. I can't help but think the impact that must have had on me. First, I've got a teacher telling me that I'm not smart. Right. Then I've got a mom holding me back in my class. At a time when doing that was embarrassing. Yeah, yeah. And made you feel not confident about yourself. It's like a punishment. And I think that's why I, I excelled more in, into soccer too because I found something that I loved. Mm -hmm. I, I found something that I could do well. I found something that could give me a different, you know, kind of outlet. And then I had a very crazy upbringing too. My dad was in law enforcement. And my dad became the police chief in upstate New York where we lived. Okay. And when I was 12 years old, there was a traumatic shooting at our home where the um, criminals tried to kill my dad. And they shot out all the windows of our house. How old were you? I was 12. Oh. 12. And you were there, everybody I was, was there, home. yes, I was in the house. So my brother and sister were there, my mom. We were, it was a, like a Sunday afternoon, we were having a, a, a dinner 
midday, and then all of a sudden shots started firing, and our windows started being, you know, shot at. My dad ran out into the, and this was a very rural area. I understand. The name of the road we lived on was Mountain Road. Okay. That's how rural. And my dad had this big shootout in the street. He ran out of bullets. My brother had to run him out bullets. Okay, come back. My sister. You mean they actually planted themselves there yes, and were shooting were at the yes. house? Yeah, yeah. Were, so these guys were serious. This was set up, yeah. And, and my sister was at the window with binoculars trying to see who's shooting. And later on, she'll go on to win a Pulitzer Prize, you know, as a photographer. So she had that innate kind of Already. interest of like what's going on. And my mom, I was on the floor lying down. My mom was calling the police, the local police, okay? And, and they, they, uh, they never caught the guys. And, but they put, us into a, um, they put us into a hotel in New Jersey um, to hide out for a couple of days. And my dad went back to the house with the FBI because they had heard that these guys were going to come back for retribution again, and, and they, they didn't. And then we wound up, our family wound up running away to Florida and stayed down there for a year. And, uh, and that's where I really got into soccer, which was the interesting thing. I, I could sit here and talk about this forever. But you, but, but you got in, but also now you finally got, did you get back into your same grade, the right grade? The no, right so, grade? so, so, no. So you were so always the oldest? Yeah. Were you always the oldest in your class? Um, yes, I was, I was. And I never really kind of explained that. All the kids were like wondering why I was a little bit older, but I didn't want to say that. But that like, gave you know. an advantage, you know that? Yeah, I think so in ways. Emotionally and physically. Sure, you know. But you don't figure that out when you're a kid. I you know just that. You figure well, it see, out. See, my father yeah. did the opposite to me. Yeah. And it was funny because I went to my, I was very honored. I, I was inducted into my high school Hall of Fame and my college Hall of Fame as well. And I told the story. I was actually in the school where it was the school district. It, so with the elementary school, the middle school, and the high school are all the same, right? And I, when I did my acceptance speech, I actually told the story and I said, I'm not sure who, the, uh, oh wait, uh, I said, uh, I'm not sure the teacher that, I, when I got left back, when my mom held me back a year, I don't know exactly who that teacher was. But I said, I'd like to really congratulate that teacher because I've got the best-selling DVDs in Japan. I've got the best-selling soccer books in Japan. I've been on national television every single day for 14 years. So I'd like to thank whoever that teacher was because somehow it motivated me to kind of really, you know, um, go in full head into what I what Because what, the teacher actually did? That teacher actually did? Because they knew that you were being held back? Well, I don't know, but I was kind of, it was a kind of metaphor for, you know, okay, well, sometimes we stumble in life. You might get left back in school or you might you know, something might happen. Your parents get divorced like my kid, my parents did as well. Well, they did? How old were you when yeah. that happened? Well, that was right after we moved down to Florida, my mom and dad. Your mom dad. said she had enough. She said yeah, she, she had, had enough. enough. It's exactly what happened. And then what happened was my dad decided to move us all back to New York again and move right into the house where the shootout was. Yeah. And your mom said, no, that's not going to happen. My mom, yeah, my, so my mom just basically left, never came back. We won't move back. We all missed our, our friends and wait, things. Wait, wait, did you stay with your mom, though? No. So when my mom and dad divorced, my, myself, my brother, and my sister, we decided we went with my dad back to New York and to live there. And we didn't see her for many years. It, was, it wouldn't be until later on in life. She kind of became a bit estranged to the family um, and wanted to stay in Florida. And she said, enough is enough. I'm not going back. And we were kids, so we don't. yeah, for her, too. So, yeah, it's, you my know, but, but I, you know, the... The, the root of the whole kind of moral of the story is, is that everybody's got these setbacks, you know? I mean, this is, I still feel blessed in a way because there's so many things that have been positive in my life. Do you think the things that really held you back that were hard for you helped to make you? I think so. 
I think so because I had to become very independent at a young age. I mean, well, okay, what age? You know, well, 12 when we okay, moved right. back to, and I had no mom. Right? What was your brother and your sister? My brother and sister came back, but then you can remember my brother was a little bit older, so it was really about a year or so, and then he went into the Air Force when he was 18. I think so he, he wanted to escape. To right. he wanted Same to, thing, yeah. get away. And then my sister was really into studying. She worked at the library at the college. and She was into photography um, already. And then she went away to university at Bradley University in Illinois. So I was I stayed there with my dad, you know, and it so was, it was just you and him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How how long did you stay with him? To you, what? How long? I think it was until mm -hmm. I was around eighteen years old, and then I went to junior. I was very lucky again, in upstate New York, where I went to school, Ulster County Community College. It was a it was a national powerhouse for soccer. It was a, it, it was. But you'd already but you'd already gotten well, hooked well, on soccer. Yes, I was right. already hooked on soccer, okay. and my main goal at high school was to play on that team because rarely, if ever, a local kid was good enough to play on that team because all of the players came from New York City. They were Greeks, they were, you know, Italians, Ricans, they were, uh, they were, they were oh, mostly uh, Croatians, That's Europeans. Right. So very rarely a local guy could make it. So that was my goal. So I had a goal really early on. And so that was my kind of, you know, motivation was to try to get on that team. And I did. I wound up playing, playing on that team. So I, I played for two years, I won a starting position. We went to the, and it was funny because the two years before I went there, they were back-to-back -back national champions. So it was a lot of pressure to actually right. do well. Everybody wanted to be on it. Yes, everybody wanted to be on that team. And I went my first year, my freshman year, we didn't make the nationals. I started every game, but then the next year we did. We made the nationals. <laughs> okay. And then my life, you know, I was just so f laser focused on soccer. So what, what about your academics? What did you have to say? You had to. I was terrible. I really was. Were, were, were they letting you slide because no, you were good I was on soccer? No, because you know, in, in junior college, <laughs> as long as you maintain a 2.0. I know, yeah, yeah, you have C average, a, right? Yeah, and that's, I was a C average school. Yeah. And it wasn't because I was a dummy, it was just, you I just weren't interested. I wasn't interested. And there I were no teachers interested. making you interested. And it's a stark difference because my two boys are like academically geniuses, both of my kids, because they put a lot of effort into it, they're focused. And the one thing, you know, as a lifetimer here in Japan, and as you know, being here much longer than I have, and I've been here pretty long, is we sit around and complain a lot sometimes about certain things about Japan, and this is culture, but the education system literally teaches kids how to learn. Let me ask you this, too. How much time did your, your wife spend with her kids? Oh, with my wife? Yes. Yeah, of course. Spends a lot more time See, with them. Yeah. This, this yeah. We don't give enough credit, I think, sometimes. Sure to our wives, yep. my wife, and working full-time, spent every second they needed yeah. working with them on anything yeah. they had to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what makes the difference, sure, sure. to be honest. Yeah. It doesn't matter how good or bad their teachers are. Right. Mom is right there in the corner. And my mom, before and my... And they're her kids, so yeah. she knows the you that's in them. Yeah. Did she ah, if you didn't have that in you, yeah. I can teach you better. She knows what she's like. Sure. And she makes it work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that that's probably one of the tick boxes yes. of why, because of my parents divorced, I didn't have a mom around, so I was on my own. My dad. And your was dad's out. busy doing his job. My dad's busy doing his and job. And the teacher said, "Hey." Sometimes he's on the late shift and he's coming home. You know, home teachers in the tend to pay more attention to the kids whose parents are there. Yeah. And around. Well. Because they know they're going to have to answer to them. Sure. If the parents aren't around, parents, the teachers. That's a good point. They don't care about you. Why should I? That's a good point. <laughs> but, you know, mm -hmm. it's, 
it's so but my, your boys are geniuses. You said your boys they are do well. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I'm, both of them are I they mean, close in age? Uh, they are. Uh, one born two thousand six, the other two thousand eight. So they're academically they're okay, three years apart though actually. Okay, right, right. The way that are they close apart. together as brothers? They're pretty close. Yeah, they uh, are. Okay. I mean, you know, when you get a little bit older here in Japan and you've been going to junior high school and high school, I mean, it's like a full time commitment to, to that's school. Right, that's right. And they both play soccer as well. Um, so yeah, they. they the get ages now are what? Six so 14 and 14, 17. 14, 17, yeah. So the 14-year-old will be 15 in October. The 17-year-old who's in his last year of high school will be 18 in January. Wow. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. That's good to have them together. So anyway, so you're telling me they're doing so well in school. Yeah, they do very well academically. They're both very good soccer players as well. Um, well, they, like they had a choice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly, right. I mean, just, you, before they even started standing up, you had that ball in front of them, I bet you, well, you rolled well, it yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny because the way my career has taken, uh, has gone, I actually wrote a book about my kids um, that turned out to be a bestseller called Soccer Starts at Home. And that's really what I, what I do now. I literally, I, I go around the world speaking about, it's a, it's a philosophy. Um, and it's based on, if you look at worldwide, I mean, soccer is a global sport. Right. We call it football, right? But see, you just got into it in the States as it started to become popular, because it wasn't popular Yeah, it was popular back in the 70s. That's right. You know, and you I, just I came grew up came watching uh, Pele right. at the New York Cosmos. <laughs> Who didn't? I went to his farewell game, I remember, 78,000 people in the stands at Giant Stadium. But it, it took a while for the soccer to really catch on in the U.S. Yeah. because of football. Well, here it, here's people don't understand about soccer in the U.S., Participation-wise, it's the number one sport. It's been right, for many we're years. We're talking spectator. U.S. goes on spectator. And and the reason is, well, half of the half of the kids are, are girls as well. So the participation sport is huge. Yeah. So it's massive. The U.S. the women's national team is the only country that's won four World Cup tournaments and four gold medals in the Olympics. And it's because one of the reasons is because we got a big head start as well um, in playing the sport. But the sport has always been popular for kids to play, participate. Mm. It wasn't the most popular spectator-wise, but it's changed drastically. In fact, there's a massive soccer boom in the United States right now. And the next World Cup is in the mm. United States as well. I think one of the things that makes it really popular is that you don't have the same kind of injuries you have in these contact sports. Injuries, plus it's, it's very... It's they don't come out, people don't come out not knowing their name after that's they right. played that's right. seasons. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But yeah, it's yes. come a long way since I was there, you know, f almost nearly 40 years ago. But I, I'm connected to the U.S. soccer scene as well. So, so you made this your life. Yeah, it's my. It has been. Yeah, it's my career. I. Um, so let's talk about that. When you came, when you sure. came from, when you came from, to come over here first, you finished college. So, so, so yeah, how I got in, involved in soccer in Japan has to do with my junior college head coach. Okay. A guy by the name of George Visvari, who unfortunately passed away recently, mm. lived a long life, um, Hungarian, escaped the war, one of those stories that you could <laughs> sit here and fill up hours talking about. And he knew the former head coach of the Japan national team, a guy named Hans Oft, who was the first ever foreigner to become the head coach of the Japan national team. Up okay. until Hans became head coach, it had always been a Japanese coach. And George Visvari and Hansoft were friends. And Hansoft's assistant coach, Japanese fella, Takata Toyoharu-san, he went to the States and he got one of his coaching licenses. And my college coach was one of his instructors. And believe it or not, from that, I got in, I got, um, I, I was introduced to Hitachi, which is in Chiba, 
It's in Kashiwa, Kashiwa, uh, uh, Jibu. This was before the J-League. This was in the mid-1980s. Who's Hitachi? Hitachi is, a, you know, just uh, uh, industrial, you know. Oh, I know. Uh, yeah, I think yeah. you're talking about a person. Yes, yeah, sorry. You're talking about so the, the club. The club, the club. It was called Hitachi back then. All the teams. But Hitachi were, owned it. I mean, yes. it was, it was they owned Hitachi it, but they also, they all also called it Hitachi FC. Okay, I got you. Just like it was Nissan, I FC, understand Nissan Yamaha, or Toyota, or whatever. And they're all there still, but they're different names, and they're in the J-League now. Wow. They're the same organization. Because they didn't, they, they had a massive boom of soccer yes. groups. They had so many. It was yes. just. So, so I, I went to Hitachi and they accepted me and I was there for a couple of seasons. At the time though, they didn't allow... Well, that was your first time in Japan? Yes, that was my first time and my first introduction. What were you, 20? I was 24 years old, I guess. So you was. hadn't finished, had you finished college? No. Yeah, I, I, was, I was done. I was complete. I went to, again, it's a long <laughs> okay. story because I wound up in England for a year too, but then I came back to the States. To and play then, soccer? Yes. And then the whole U.S. soccer scene collapsed. The whole professional league uh, went bankrupt and went under, so there was no team. So it was just you know everybody was like gypsies trying to figure out. So I was very lucky again being introduced to Hitachi, and I went there. I was the first foreigner to ever step on their their soccer field ever, um, which was a big culture shock. Um, and then uh, you know I, I stayed there. They didn't allow foreigners to play on the first team. So I could train on with the first team, but I, I was registered with the second team, which was fine. And I was a mediocre player anyway. So I, I wound up there, but then I fell in love with Japan and I wanted to stay here in Japan. And my really, really biggest break in Japan was after I finished playing and um, I hung up the boots, so to speak, I wanted to stay in Japan. I couldn't speak Japanese that well at the time. But I wanted to kind of, you know, just kind of get into coaching. So I started volunteering on a lot of the U.S. military bases uh, at the international schools. Who was the first base? Uh, I would say it was Atsugi. Okay, I've been Atsugi. to every single one of them, gotcha. all over, and, and I've done camps at all of them. Right. This was years ago, years ago. I'm talking the 1980s, right? And then, and actually, uh, 1980, I finished 88 playing, and then 89. So. I would go around to all these schools, I would cold call them, and I would just say, hey, I'm Tom Byer, former professional soccer player, I'd like to come and do like a soccer coaching session for your kids. And I wound up being invited to the Canadian Academy down in Kobe. Kobe, yes. I don't even know if it exists anymore. Oh, still, I think it does. This was my break. We still, we still if this story that I tell you hadn't mm -hmm. happened, we wouldn't be here today. Okay. So I go to the Canadian Academy, they paid just for my bullet train, and I went down, and I was doing this coaching session, started, you know, four o'clock in the afternoon, whatever. I had about 20. This was 1990? This was probably, this was 1988. 1988, I know exactly, okay. for sure, 100%. Mm -hmm. 88. And I was doing this, uh, this coaching session, and I had a group of young kids, let's say 30 kids, all different various ages, elementary school, junior high. I don't remember even the makeup of the school, but here's the destiny. I asked only one child, I asked one kid, hey, how long you been here? Oh, I've been here a year. Da, da, da. I said, uh, what does your dad do? He goes, he works for Nestle. I said, okay. And that was it. That was the only kid I really engaged in the conversation. And then I, I finish, I go back to Tokyo. At the time I was living with a roommate who was also a player, Japanese player though. And he was subscribed to, you know, uh, like a Yomiuri newspaper, one of the newspapers. So, I pick up the newspaper one morning and I open up the newspaper, even though I can't read it, but I'm just looking at it, and I open it up and it's a full page advertisement for Nestle 
for the drink Mi Milo. Milo, 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 yes, Milo, yes, Milo. yes, 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 yes. And they're having what's called the Milo International Boys Soccer Tournament in Japan here. And, you know, in America, we don't have Milo. We have Nesquik yes, uh, Nes 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 and all that. Nes right. Quick, right. So I looked at it and I said, wait a minute. I met some kid recently. Dad worked at Nestle or something. Cause I was looking for a sponsor. Right. I was looking to stay in Japan. I had nothing. I, I, I had, you know, no way to even feed myself other than the money that I, that I had, right? So I called to the school, to that coach, whoever it was. I don't even remember who it was. And I called and it kind of went like this. Hey, listen, you know, when I was down there, I met some kid. He said he worked at, his dad works at Nestle. Oh, that's the Yost family, he goes to me. So, so he goes, so he goes and he gets the school directory, which is unheard of today, right? Goes through the, I can hear him, I can hear him going through the pages. And he goes, here's the phone number. Of course. So he gives me the phone number. I quickly hang up and then I call in the evening time and the kid answers. And I said, hey, this is Tom Beyer. He seems all excited. I said, hey, listen, you told me your dad works for Nestle. Didn't you? He goes, yeah, I goes, what does he do? He goes, he's the president. <laughs> True story. So. I think his first name was Alan, Alan Yost, but anyway, Yost. Um, he gets on, and oh, thank you for coming. I can't do a very good French Swiss mm -hmm. uh, accent, but thanks for coming, blah, blah. I said, listen, I'm a former player, and I'm looking to get a sponsor and do some events. Right? Oh, he goes, listen, let me introduce you to Mr. Toya, Toya-san, who was the brand manager of Milo, who was based in Tokyo, because the you know, Nestle headquarters is in Kobe. So long story short, I walked into Nestle um, with another friend of mine who was my partner at the time, walked into Nestle at a meeting in 1988, I think it was around December or January, and I came out of that meeting having agreed to start in 1989 and do 50 events, five events. zero, 50 events. And I had no idea how I was gonna do this. What have the events doing what? So going around Japan just teaching soccer skills to kids in an event kind of uh, And you did platform. all this in English then? Yes, uh, well, well, well. Did your partner help you? So, so what happened was, so this is how the kind of the story unwinds. So first I come out of that meeting, high five and happy, I've got a deal for 50 events, you know, and, uh, and then trying to figure out. So then I started having to think of, well, who, who am I gonna do this with? First of all, I don't speak good Japanese, so I need a guy, I need a bilingual guy someone that speaks English and Japanese. So I found like literally like one of the only guys that played soccer here who could like speak English that went to school in San and Diego. understood the skill. Knew the, knew the then skill. I thought, well, I need a bigger name because my name's not big. So then I found a guy who was a former national team player here that had a big name and just retired. Then I found another bilingual guy. So I surround myself with guys. And I do, this is really my my ethos even today is I surround myself with guys who could do things that I knew I couldn't do, right? And so I put this team of guys together and it was trial by error in the beginning. But then again, long story short, I wound up being with Nestle for 10 years. Ten I years. built this huge soccer event And every platform. year, did you have that many events? Oh basically? yeah, 50 events every single year. Every single every year. Every single year, even did more. So I started working well, with other now brands Now they were doing well. these events, so there had to be an amount. They said, this is what you're gonna get, but you have to do 50. Listen to this. So how we got paid was very unusual. We basically made these kind of, you know, like little um, flyers, but like little cardboard, like kind of cutouts. I, I have the image in my mind, because I, I was on the front of it, and called Milo, and it was a picture of me. And it had this little perforated little ticket that you flip it over and you had to put your name, your address, your phone number, and then you had to tear it off, 
give it to us and then depending upon how many of the tickets we gave into Nestle would depend upon how much they paid us. So we, we yeah, this, is, this, was, this was back, this, was, this started in 1989. So at the time we brokered a deal where I think it was they would give us 600 yen if it was Kanto per kid, 700 yen if it was outside of Kanto. But I did that for 10 years. That, that's mm -hmm. what put me on the map here. I, I became the Milo guy. Wow. I did commercials for them. I did posters. And so that was my real big break right. here in Japan. And what it also did was it afforded me the opportunity to visit every single prefecture. So I've been to all four, 47 prefectures mm -hmm. multiple yeah. times. So from, I built from this. From Hokkaido down to Kyushu. Oh man, Okinawa to Okinawa, okay. everywhere. Okinawa. Little tiny island, wow. everywhere I've been. And what that did was it, I built a massive network a massive network, which would help me on my timeline of my career here because there's a timeline. So I did those Nestle clinics and I also did with uh, Domino's Pizza when they Domino's first Pizza. came out. Ernie Higa? Yes. I wasn't, uh, I met Ernie recently because I don't really know him that well, but of course he was the boss at the time. I think it might have been his dad. Was his dad? No, no. He's the one that brought it He here. was Ernie the one that brought, brought it, it right. And, and so the guys I was working with are different guys. But anyway, I built a real interesting grassroots program for five years for them because they had just come out. I worked with uh, McDonald's, I worked with Coca-Cola, but my big, big, big break was I brought over to Japan in 1993. 1993, the J-League was born. Okay. Uh, for people right. who don't know, that's the professional league right. here. Um, and it started in 1993, so, so this year is the 30th anniversary. How many teams are on the J-League? There's 60 now. 60 teams. 60. So they we started off with how many? Well, probably started with out with about 10 or 12. I thought that was bigger, but anyway. Yeah, know. it might have been a little bit bigger, okay. but it wasn't, that, it wasn't that big. And then what happened was is that they divided into J1, right, J2, right. J3. So right now, today, there's 60 teams. 60 teams. teams. And it's about 20, 20, 20. It's, a, it's about that, give or take. 18 are they doing okay? Yeah, they do very well. J-League's doing well, very well. And the national team. But which team, yeah, which team is the national team? So, so no, so yeah, okay. you've got, a lot of people get confused. With this. You've got the professional league. Right. Okay, like we've got Major League Baseball. But that's but all J-League. Yeah, this is all J-League. Everything's J-League. Yes. encompasses all soccer. Yes, it's so, okay. so all of the professional teams play under the banner of J-League. And then you've got the best of the best players come into the national team. But here's the kicker. The J-League, the best players in Japan, most of them play in Europe. In European teams now so 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 anyway what happened was my story was is that in 1993 the J League was born mm -hmm. and at the same time the JFA so you've got J League which is the professionals JFA which is the Japan Football Association they govern all national teams okay okay and they govern the game from A to B but then the JFA put their hand in the air to become the 2002 World Cups hosts. Remember, we had the mm -hmm. World Cup here and they had it jointly with Korea. Right, right. So 1993 is a pivotal year for Japanese soccer because the J-League was born, the JFA put their hand in the air for being, playing to, for being the host, and I introduced a very um, important coaching program to Japan called Curver Coaching. Okay. It's, a, it's a program that was created by a Dutchman named Will Curver. I found an investor here in Japan. He bought into my um, vision of creating these soccer schools all around Japan. And they focused primarily on teaching technical skills. Right. And again, long story short, um, this blossomed into perhaps one of the largest soccer school commercial businesses in the world, in the world. is here in Japan, even to this day. <laughs> 
So I've seen how many. Okay, so I'll tell you. So in the beginning, we started out, and I remember. So Curver is a brand, but it's a it's a teaching philosophy and a methodology. So I brought it to Japan with the idea of improving the technical skills of Japanese players, which we've absolutely done. But in the beginning, we started out kind of on the theme of like a juku. Okay. To, so make these schools where they would the kids would come Monday to Friday, but they played on their own teams. But w when you play here in Japan, as you know too. There's no on-off season in Japan. You just play all year round. So on a typical soccer team, starting from 6 to 12, you'll join a team and you will play practice Tuesdays, Thursdays, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. There's nothing. You're off. Mm -hmm. So usually two times a week and on the weekends. So I saw an opportunity there because kids wanted to play more. So we started a couple of these schools and they became popular. And then again, a long story, very short because it's been 30 years. Um, I ran it for 15 years. I became the face of the brand. And then I spun out of it because I wanted to do some other things. But now today, fast forward, and we've got over 150 of these schools all over Japan. How many kids? Over 20,000 kids annually wow. come through it. That's we see now the fruits of our labor from that vision that I had 30 years ago because we've got four big stars on the national team right now that come from, our schools. Wow. came from our schools. Yeah. That's beautiful. And a lot of the girls too on the national team too. Wow. So it's impacted there. But So that's one thing. But then the biggest break that I had here in Japan was in 1998 when I got cast in on Japan's number one television show for children called Ohasta which a mutual friend, I think we know, Raymond Johnson, who was... Oh, Raymond Johnson, right? And so that show was born out of the Pokemon craze. Mm -hmm. In 1997, in October, it started from Pokemon. Then, if you remember, in 1997, Japan qualified for its first ever World Cup tournament in France, 1998. So the country was going bananas because the J-League had started, the JFA wanted the World Cup in 2002 after the uh, French, which they got. Mm -hmm. So soccer was at its pinnacle in 1998. And now here I get casted on this TV show, which literally puts me on steroids now. To do what? To basically present a, every morning a one-point technical lesson named after me, Tom Son's Soccer Techniques. And you get up there with the ball yeah, and you show them. Yeah, that's what I do. It was a corner that would go one to two minutes per day, mm -hmm. but it went every day. And it went Monday through Friday. And when I started, I was also under contract with Adidas at the time as their soccer ambassador. Um, I was on TV. Uh, also coming with the TV show was a comic book called Koro Koro Comic, which is the Did number you one. In? Yeah, yeah, so I had two pages there. Every so here I am. I had already done Nestle clinics for over a decade, so I had a big network. But I wasn't as famous because I wasn't on TV then. Right, so, right, right. But, I, but I was you know, pretty popular because I'm going there and doing these events. But now I'm going around and I'm, I'm, I'm using my network to invite me back. But now I'm on TV. I'm in the number one So you're being recognized book. every time yeah, you walk around everywhere. the street. Right? Oh, yeah. I mean, those were the crazy days. So how long did that last? 14 years. I was on a show years. for 14 years. But even today, people still recognize yeah, you. Sure. You walk around and yeah, see Especially if I go to soccer <laughs> games, of course. Right. They know right but it's funny, Lance, because... My name is much, much more famous than my faces okay. because every morning that TV show for 14 years, it never changed. It was Oha Tombaya this. I would just come and say, I'm Tom Bayer. So I'll go around and people, when I start talking, some people will recognize me right, right off right, the bat. But most of them will when I when they hear the name and they oh my God, yeah. then they know who you are. Yeah, they do because that wow. it just went forever. It went so like, but you said you, you you're still doing it. But how, what are you doing now? I put out 
a set of DVDs back in the day as well that became exploded as well. Um, I, I originally, actually, a two-part VHS video, which mm -hmm. was a bestseller. So basically got into the contents business because what I'm teaching on TV was technical skills. Soccer is an extremely technical sport. So we basically wanted to make the baseline um, and make sure that Japanese players had a very strong foundation of technical skills, which they do today. Mm. But a lot of people don't understand it. So looking back at everything that I did in the past um, and then fast forwarding, when my, my own, so there's so many different timelines in my life. And I have a whole presentation I go around the world and I show. Mm. And so another mm. big timeline was is when my, kid, my own kids were born. Right. And so here I was, the guy on TV, I'm you know, teaching about technical skills, and now I've got my own kids. And you've got to remember, I was always working with other people's kids. That's right. I didn't have any kids. And as you right. know, when you have your own kids, that's a game changer, difference. right? So when I had my own kids, I was doing an event um, for Adidas, and like one of these mega events I do with like several hundred kids there. And after the event, they were giving me these little miniature balls. We call them replica balls, of like the World Cup. And I was signing them to just a handful of kids that we pointed out that like give us for volunteering to come out. And I'm giving them the balls. And this is when the proverbial ball fell right in my lap because it was a tiny ball. And my first son, Kaito, just started walking. And these balls are not meant to be played with. They're meant to just sit on display on a, okay, on a shelf. Right, right. So <laughs> I thought small ball, small foot. Kaito just started walking. So I literally, while I was holding the ball, I yelled to the Adidas guy. There's a guy that, that manages me, comes to all my events, and I yelled to him in Japanese, hey, send me a few of these balls to my house. So about a week later, this huge case of balls with 20 balls arrives at my house. And I'm thinking, well, what am I going to do with all these balls? I knew the importance of not kicking the ball all the time. I, I, I knew the importance of what we call ball mastery, learning how to control the ball, manipulate the ball, and protect the ball. So I took two or three of these little balls and I put them in every room of my house. Okay, my wife thought I was nuts, but now fast forward, she thinks she realizes the genius in it. And from day one, when my boy stood up to play with the ball, I would discourage kicking because the natural it's instinct is to kick. kick right. I started to see things that I had never seen before in my life. First of all, how interested he became in the ball how conditioned he became that he didn't kick it because I was modeling it and I was showing him how to pull the ball back, right foot, left foot, teaching him a little bit older just to protect the ball. And then I became obsessed with soccer development. And also just because I'm a father too, I started videoing my son, just not thinking about right. when you hear what the, what's happened. And then I started really, really getting into like, well, why this sport that's the most popular sport in the world there's 211 countries that make up what's called FIFA. FIFA is the FIFA, world governing yes. body. Right. But out of that 211 on the men's side, out of the 211, only eight have ever won a World Cup championship. Mm. And it's uh, Uruguay, Argentina, Brazil, Germany, Spa Spain, France, England, okay? And Italy. And so there's only, it's a very elite group. And out of those eight, there's only a couple of serial repeat winners. So I started studying these countries, trying to figure out, well, why do they develop so many good players? Do they have better coaches? Do they have more coaches? Do they have a better curriculum? Do they have a better, what we call, elite player pathway? Do they, be they have better facilities? And I came up with none of the above. What they have is 
They have cultures in place that are very conducive to developing players because those kids get a tremendous head start and they'll start playing with a ball as early as two, three, four, five, six, like I replicated in my living room. And again, I started becoming really possessed about this whole, like, why do certain countries develop and certain don't? And then I could see my son, by the age of three or four, could do things with the ball that, like, most older players couldn't even do. I could see the focus, I could see the interest, I could see everything, right? And I had this documented video, you know, proof of concept. So then, I wrote a book. I wrote a book with, and I'm sure you probably know this fella, he's a, a British, uh, been here forever, Fred Varco. Fred Varco, yes. So Fred, because he's a professional journalist, yes. um, he did the writing and I did the, you know, provided the content. And we wrote this book called Soccer Starts at Home. And right before we were going to publish, that's why I say again, blessed. I've been blessed my whole life. So, somehow, some, in, there's certain periods of my life that things just, and they don't, I don't think they just pop in. They, they're planted. That's right. And so in 2015, right when we got done with the manuscript, I got contacted by this fella on, uh, inter, and, uh, on Facebook, actually, a fella by the name of Dr. John Rady, who is a world-renowned, neuropsychiatrist from Harvard Medical School who has written a dozen bestsellers. His best-selling book is called Spark. And what he's done is he's done decades of work that show the, uh, that the kids and people who are physically active, the impact it has on the brain and learning. He's world-renowned. So, and I had, writ I had writ just got done reading the book Spark and I thought this was a joke. Someone was playing a joke on me because I got this message through Facebook, like Messenger, saying, hi, I'm John Rady. I wrote a book it's called Spark. Da -da -da. I'm interested in your work. Um, again, long story short, so it culminated in a, in, a, in a conversation. For one hour, he called me on the phone from, uh, from Harvard, from Boston. And I, I, we started talking, and I told him I wrote this book. He said, wow, I'd love to read the manuscript. So we sent it to him, and he loved it so much, he wrote, the, he wrote 14 Four. pages from my book. And Fred cut it up and put it into the forward mm. and the afterwards. So <clears> that put me in a completely different level. Because I'm not an academic. I'm not come from the medical, the science world. But now, now you have an I've got this system. cutting edge neuroscience that's being applied to this new philosophy, which is soccer starts at home, the methodology of how do you actually do it. And so what happened was when I started to show Dr. Rady this library of videos that I had of my kids, waltzing around in the living room with a ball, he started to explain the neuroscience behind what, oh, was, what happening. was happening. Now, I could see and understand that it was working, because you can see it, right? It's mm -hmm. observation, but I couldn't explain it. So then he started <laughs> explaining it, and here's what happened. So when a child is playing in around the home, that's considered a very safe, protective environment, away from ridicule, where you can fail in a fun way. But here's what I call the gift to the parents. This makes up the philosophy and the methodology of our, our program. It's the parent's understanding of their child's constant need for attention, for approval, and praise. Yes. And what that does is it creates a chemical electrical process, which is emotions. So when you can create an emotionally charged environment, that's where deep learning and long-term memory takes place. So I had inadvertently set up my home to be a supercharged almost laboratory. And then even one more step. So when a child is trying to control an object, the object being a ball, at their feet, that becomes a mental task. But the actual movement 
becomes a physical task. So now when you can combine thinking and feeling, mind and body, and it becomes one, and here it goes, it allows the cerebellum, which is the part of the brain that's responsible for motor skills function, it allows the cerebellum to create a chemical signature of that experience, which is emotions. So they know now that emotions are the on-off switch for learning. So when Dr. Rady, he wrote in my book that he believed, and here's another big breakthrough, the cerebellum was mostly thought to be responsible for motor skills, balance, and rhythm. But the new neuroscience, through functional MRIs, of being able to see what part of the brain was, the new neuroscience has proven now that the cerebellum is responsible for more. Thinking, remembering, which is memory, uh, decision-making, controlling emotions, reading, and single-digit mathematics. So Dr. Rady had put in the book that he believed that this philosophy, this program, could impact cognition for children, thinking, remembering, focusing, and what have you. And so he wrote that in the book. The Chinese government uh, created a policy that made soccer compulsory in schools. And they have what's called the 50,000 school program, where basically 50,000 schools have a soccer curriculum. Now, based on what? Based on the president, Xi Jinping, basically mandated the government to get soccer right. They were very frustrated because, you know, being one of the most populated countries mm -hmm, in the world, mm -hmm. the inability to be able to beat Hong Kong or Taiwan or Thailand. Some of the smaller uh, and, and, right. and soccer, as football as we call world, is a very, very soft power political tool to be used globally. I mean, it's just got huge ramifications if you're a good soccer country. So the, so so the Chinese government basically sought me out sent a group over here to Japan to meet with me and convince me to go and do work in China. So I didn't want to move there because my kids were here, so I basically commuted for a couple of years between Tokyo and Beijing. This is just recent? Yeah, well, I was there prior to the pandemic. So I worked with one of the professional clubs there. I, had, um, I was the Volkswagen Group uh, soccer ambassador for the whole country. <laughs> I was the Adidas ambassador for uh, China as well, AIA insurance. I had a big run there in China. Mm -hmm. I was doing a lot there. And then I convinced the, they came to me and they said, what's the one single biggest impactful kind of program do you think that you could, we could have on doing? I said, that's easy, it's like I did in Japan. You need a media component. So I filmed a TV show, a corner, that would appear every single day, 365 days a year, from 6.15 in the evening to 6.18, just three minutes, just the soccer techniques corner, but I did it with David Beckham. So David Beckham, yeah. In China? In China, yeah. So he came there. Yeah, so, so David was, David is also a guy who's a, f a soccer ambassador for Adidas, right, okay. and so am I. So David was coming to do some events together with me in China, so I told the Adidas guy, I said, this is a no-brainer. I'd brought Adidas in on the, on the project for the TV show. And I said, you know, I'd heard a rumor that, you know, David's a little bit better looking than I am, so the moms and the people are going to be more attractive. So we put David, came on the beginning of it, but I did it all. So I'll show it, I'll, I can nice, show it to you afterwards. Nice, nice, nice. And that was a big impact. In fact, the Chinese government recognized me and gave me a national award for the contribution. Mm -hmm. But then the pandemic hit and, and the rest is history. What China. are you doing today? Where are you? Oh, yeah, that's today? right. So I mm -hmm. am much more of a consultant. I create content which we license. So, for example, the phrases, soccer starts at home, football starts at home, those are trademarks that okay. my company owns. Yes. Um, and then also we have the copyright from the book. 
So I can tell you now, um, so projects that I'm, I'm working with, for the last four years, I've worked with Major League Soccer in America with the Houston Dynamo. Okay. So pre-pandemic, the Houston Dynamo would fly me into Houston every quarter and I'd spend a week there. The University of Houston partnered with the professional club that I was working with, the Houston Dynamo. We set up a research laboratory. There's a physical building. No, th th this is in Houston. Okay, in Houston. Before Stanford, and I got off on the, okay, the Stanford. Okay, okay, okay. Stanford came to me. They have what's called the Stanford Center. That's a physical building inside Peking University wow. in Beijing. Okay. And they came to me, and they had heard about my program, and they asked if we could conduct some research with a foundation associated with Stanford that was researching um, and working with uh, preschools and early learning centers in China. So our program, because ball mastery is very difficult for a child to practice controlling a ball with their feet, that becomes a mental task. But what it does is it teaches a child, and here's the point, how to pay attention. So when you teach a small two, three, four, five-year-old and develop the ability to pay attention, that's like a super skill. That's like a superhero. Because I mean, once, once a child learns how to focus attention, that's when they figure out how to turn the learning switch on. So you can bring the best coach or the best teacher to your kid's classroom. If the kid doesn't pay attention, learning doesn't take place. <clears throat> so we started realizing that this ball mastery was teaching children how to focus their attention. It was teaching them lots of uh, uh, other things of focus, uh, agility, um, interaction between a child and a parent. And it was also learning to develop and control their emotions. Because mm. when a child can do something, that's well-being. That's when a child, there's nothing more powerful than a child yelling, Mommy, Daddy, look, I did it. That's empowerment, right? So when a kid gets that success at an early age, and so what Dr. Rady from Harvard had written in the book is that you don't have a different brain for learning soccer, playing the piano, or learning math. It's the same brain. And the brain is a muscle. It's a whole neuroplasticity right, where right, the brain right. develops. So he saw this as a way to really impact um, the brain, and in particular the cerebellum, a cerebral training of the brain. So we did some research in, with the Stanford Center, sent a bunch of researchers to far way out in a place called Chengdu, which is out by Tibet, to several learning centers. I helped design the program, did it, and we collected unbelievable data. And at the end of the, and this was only after several weeks, at the, at the end of the, uh, the kids were more focused, uh, the, the parents saw more confidence in the mm -hmm. children, um, they enjoyed playing with the ball. It was just a lot of things. So then the University of Houston set up this research laboratory. So literally you walk into the University of Houston, there's a, 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 a door and it says Houston Dynamo slash Soccer Starts at Home Research Laboratory. That's they all we do. They use your whole title. Yes. For two years they've been doing this and here it is. We partnered in Houston. There's a, a school, a charter school program there called KIPP. Why, why they're important is because they, they focus on underserved communities. Most 80, 90 percent mm. are from uh, low-income families, Hispanic, uh, black African-American families. So they became our partners. We conducted this research. And so when you do research, you have what's called the treatment group and you have the control group. The con the, the treatment group get our program. So we designed a soccer starts at home program, ball mastery. They did it at home. We trained and educated and, and inspired the parents. We did the same thing with the schools. And there was a feedback loop, what they did at home, they did at school, what they did at school, did at home. And then there was a group that didn't, didn't do anything. But we had a measurement of their IQ and we put them through all kinds of cognitive skills. Okay, at the end of the test, okay, 
we improved the kids who were in our program, we improved their test scores in mathematics and in English. So literacy and numeracy. Boom. We also decreased the sedentary activity. So the kids who were in our program, because we hooked them up to wearables, we could see how active they were. They were off the charts to the other kids. So think of those implications. That's right. You're using a sport. We use soccer as the vehicle on a mm -hmm. ball to actually impact cognition, uh, uh, cognitive skills, social skills, the interaction, okay, emotional skills, and physical skills. And then when you said you get the parents involved too, I can see where this is such a good program, being able to have all those combined together, because even the parents benefit, seeing their kids benefiting from it, then they can get themselves a ball and start doing the same thing. It, it, it ticks off everybody. It does. I'd like to ask a question before I end the podcast. Sir. If you could go back in time and meet the young Tom Byer and give him advice, how old would he be and what advice would you give him? That's a very good question. Um, I would say it would probably be my teen years because when you become a teenager, you start trying to figure out, okay, well, where's my place in this world? And it would probably go back and give myself some advice, which would be, and I, I heard this and I, and I never forgot it, and I heard it again recently. Perhaps three of the most powerful words in life are, life goes on regardless of what happens to you, right? Whether you fail, whether you're sick, whether someone passes away, whether you get fired, whether whatever, life goes on, man. So you gotta keep pushing. And so I would go back to my younger self and, and try to convince that person to live much more in the present. Because we are living in the past and we're trying to get to the future and we're missing, we only got this moment right now. I'm sitting here with, with Lance Lee and this is it right now. I don't know what's gonna happen after this. <laughs> Tom, with that, I wanna thank you so much, buddy. We're gonna do this again. There's Absolutely. no doubt because I know you have, so you're holding on to so much, you're bursting the seams. 100 But I want to thank all of you for watching this podcast. Make sure you press like and subscribe. And never forget, it's all unknown. So continue to reach for the stars. Because you're too blessed to be stressed.